conversation we've been having over the last few weeks that I'm going to finish off today is about relationships, renewing relationships. And uh, the missional communities are one of the ways in which we connect with each other and connect with God and connect with the world that God calls us to love. And so that's why we're tying these things together here as we're finishing up this conversation. If you haven't been with us, let me just give you a really brief overview of what we've been talking about in renewing relationships. Uh, The idea is that we as a culture, and probably not just North American culture, but as a world, are more connected than we've ever been in history. I think many of you could acknowledge that when it comes to the internet, it comes to all these different ways that the world is globally connected, connected across culture, uh, within where we are at um, in so many ways, yet it feels as though, at least my opinion, we are the least known that we've ever been. We're more connected, we can connect with thousands of people in moments, yet we are yet less known, truly deeply known in our lives, partly maybe because of that very high connectivity. But regardless of maybe what has caused that lack of really truly being known, which many of you have shared with me that you have felt, the truth is, is that some of our specific relationships could use some renewing. Some of the relationships we have with our spouse, our families, our roommates, our best friends, our extended family, maybe even the relationships amongst us here at this church community. Perhaps some of you are here today checking out a church like Mill City, wondering if the relationship you've had with the church can be renewed. And that's a big question for some of us that some of us are still trying to answer. But relationships with the people around us affect everything in our lives. We know that that is true. Uh, It's impossible to say that when our relationships are suffering, that we wouldn't also feel that we're suffering. And so many times when our relationships are going well, we really feel like life is going well. And then to take it a little bit further, I think there's a direct correlation with how our relationships are going with people in our lives to how our relationships with God is going in our lives. In a lot of ways, there's a reflection of the quality of our relationship with other people to the quality of our relationship with God. I think God created us that way and made us that way. So we've talked about this uh, looking through the lens of Romans 12. Um, The Bible, the story of God is talking all the time about relationships, but Romans 12 is where we've been kind of focusing in, this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome. And we've been looking at kind of some practices. So let me just tell you what we looked at these last few weeks. Last week, J.D. talked about practicing hospitality and how that's a practice that we can do to renew relationships. Praying for people, putting love into action, offering your strengths, and bringing your, what you're good at to the table, uh, listening to God together and with each other. And today what I want to talk about is the practice of trying to make peace, to be people who are peacemakers. So let's pray before we look into God's word together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for this opportunity to be here in this room, in this public school, to worship you freely. That's a privilege. We thank you for Sheridan, for their hospitality towards us, to welcome us into the space, to allow us to keep our things here. It really is an amazing thing. God, we ask that you would bless Sheridan. God, that your presence would remain here in this school after we worship today, that it would make a difference this week as kids come back to school, as there has been continued um, some stress here in the school. We pray for this school that there would be peace. God, in Jesus' name, we pray that there would be peace, that you would give peace to the children, to the teachers, to the, the faculty, the staff, the kids and their families, God. We know that you are God that can do that, and we come before you and we plead with you, God, that you would bring peace in their lives. Uh, we, we see them as our kids who we have an opportunity to love as well. So, God, we ask that you would speak to us this morning, that we would be people who are different than when we came in here today because of your presence here with us. 
Jesus Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so like I was mentioning, we're connected because of the internet. So I'm sure many of you are on Facebook. I'm not going to ask everybody to show hands or something like that, but many of you are on Facebook, Twitter, blah, 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 those types of things. There's probably a few of you who are like, I don't do that stuff, and I'm proud of it, and that's cool. We're not, this isn't about you today, but if, you, if that's what you feel, like, more power to you, like, I totally support you. So for those few of you who have never been on Facebook, there is this thing on Facebook called a relationship status, okay? Now, the relationship status is supposed to tell the Facebook world what's going on between you and the person that you are either dating or whatever. So there are a few different status. You can just not have a status at all, which some of us prefer. And then you have, yeah, me and Steve are like, we're just going to leave the mystery out there. And then uh, you have single, you have it's complicated, right? You have uh, in a relationship, and then you have married, okay? These are the relationship stati of Facebook. And I've thought about this before. Wouldn't it be interesting? I mean, what does it's complicated mean, though, right? Like, that, that's just weird. Like, it could mean a lot of things. And I'd rather keep people guessing with no status at all than what it's complicated. I mean, that could be a lot of really strange things. So, but I've often thought, wouldn't it be interesting if we could have a relationship status with our friends? Like, we kind of just let the world know what's going on between us, right? So I thought of a few relationship status that there could be. I think as friends, we could have the status, it's complicated, right? Like, she likes the same guy that I like, but I totally claimed him, but she asked him out. It's complicated. That's complicated, okay? Or it's awkward, okay? Since we both had kids right around the same time, we're trying really hard not to compare our parenting styles, but it's getting awkward, right? That would be a status. Or how about it's weird? We used to go to Twins games all the time, but now that it got cold, like, the guy never wants to hang out, and maybe we're not friends anymore. Like, he dropped off the face of the earth. It's weird. Now it's weird. Maybe we'll never hang out again. How about it's tense? It's tense. My friend loves Bernie. I love Trump. It's tense in here, right? Or then you have maybe just, it's over. It's over. Friendship's over. I can see that you're having a, a Super Bowl party and you did not invite me. It's over. Friendship status, it's over, right? But people just then, they like, you're not friends anymore. And like, did you unfriend me? You unfriended me. Like, this is the kind of drama that goes on. And I guess what, that would be super weird. I don't really think we should have that for all of our friendships. And some of us, it could just get really, really complicated, and I guess as we've been having this conversation about relationships for these last few weeks, I just kind of think that I've come to the realization, relationships are really complicated. Like, we could probably just have it's complicated as the status for all of our relationships, right? Because if you come into relationship with people and you get to know them well, two people who are different, it's going to be complicated. It's hard to understand each other. It's hard to know where someone else is coming from. Relationships are complicated. Nearly all of them are. Um, and I don't want to say that to discourage anybody as much to say that's why we would spend so much time talking about this, because it's complicated. But the way that God looks at relationships, it's super important. It's at the core of who God is and it's at the core of who God created us to be. And so today we're going to talk about something really important as we finish up this conversation, and that is conflict in relationships. Conflict in relationships. And uh, I guess... Not, see, I'm trying, really trying not to be like a Debbie Downer here, but relationships are complicated. And when it comes to conflict in most relationships, it's not an if, but a when. When is there going to be conflict? That's true for uh, the relationships we have interpersonally, one-on-one, but that's true for family, 
think is true for churches. It's true for uh, groups of people, missional communities, things like that. It's really not, I wonder if we're going to have conflict. It's really more when we have conflict, how are we going to approach that? And that's what I want to talk about today. And I think this is a pretty relevant conversation right now in our world, perhaps maybe now more than ever, because it seems like everyone has an enemy these days. Like, you're almost weird if you don't know who your enemies are, because that's just a thing that our culture, at least in North America, seems to be doing. Um, This woman uh, named Elizabeth Lesser did a TED Talk, maybe some of you saw it, and she coined this term otherizing. She called it otherizing, where groups of people are having this deep need to negatively otherize people in their life, to figure out what makes them the other compared to them, and how are we different, and it usually is turning into these really negative repercussions about how people then can't be in relationship with each other. They need to divide and then tent themselves against each other. They need to figure out where the line is and then turn towards each other and be against each other in these ways. And what she suggests is that that's at the root of a lot of the violent extremism that we now see is this otherizing. And Christians are by no means leaders amongst ourselves in peacemaking, amongst even just Christians, are we? The world needs peacemakers. Not everyone being the same or agreeing on everything or not being individual. Absolutely not. That's not what peacemaking means. But the world needs people who can say we don't have to all have enemies all the time. The world needs people to be peacemakers. And I think that that's who God created us to be. And in the time that Paul was writing to the church in Rome, here in Romans 12, uh, these, these new Christians were being persecuted. People were out to kill them, to take their money. Um, People were being stoned. People were were being killed left and right. And here Paul is writing to the folks here in the church in Rome saying that they should be peacemakers. And what the world needed then, more than probably anything else, was peacemakers. And I think what the world needs now, probably more than anything else, are peacemakers. And it's into that time period that Paul is writing, right there in the first century, that God sent the Prince of Peace into the world, Jesus. The Prince of Peace, or a better word would be Shalom. And the reason I would use the word Shalom, it's in Hebrew, is because Shalom is a huge, deep concept. Let me read to you the definition of Shalom. Completeness, wholeness, health, peace, welfare, safety, soundness, tranquility, prosperity, perfectness, fullness, rest, harmony, the the absence of agitation or disorder. Does that not sound like what our world needs right now? Shalom? And the Prince of Peace comes to this world, and God makes this choice that sometimes I want to say, are you sure you made the right choice? But the choice that God made was that the peace was going to come to the world from God, but through us. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I want to say, is there a plan B? Because this isn't going so well. But that's what God chose to do, to send Jesus as an example, and then for Jesus to say, here's what it looks like to love like me, and to bring peace like me, and follow me, and I'm going to leave, but I'm not going to be gone from you. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to guide you in continuing to be people who follow the Prince of Peace, the Prince of shalom. We can be peacemakers. Not on our own, actually. I think we can. But with God leading us in our lives and the Holy Spirit empowering us in our lives, we can be peacemakers, no matter what. 
of peacemaking has become just a really important one in the last, I don't know, maybe year or so in our church. Uh, Tim Herzog, who's one of our leadership team members, he's right here. He is really passionate about this subject. Our leadership team has been reading this book, The Peacemaker. It's a biblical guide to resolving personal conflict. We've got extra copies of this at the Mill City Commons if anyone wants to, to look at that. Uh, our membership, our covenant membership, has been talking about what it means to be peacemakers. And this is something that um, I would just describe it as something that God keeps bringing up to us. And it's really interesting because there's no huge conflict. There's no, like, secret conflict that we're not telling you about or something like that. Um, if somebody knows of one, please let me know. That's helpful for pastors. But I don't, it's not that there is something that we're trying to react to. It's that we're proactively wanting to learn how to be peacemakers because it's not an if, it's a when in relationships. It's not an if churches have conflict, it's a when churches have conflict because if Jesus is the Prince of Peace and he's bringing peace to this world, then we have an enemy who wants to thwart everything that Jesus is doing and tries to cause discord and cause agitation and all the opposite words for everything that is the definition of shalom, right? And so here we've been thinking about this, we've been, been praying about this, and we've been realizing that we want to be people who are peacemakers in this world. But if we're going to do that, we also have to be peacemakers amongst ourselves. So in the midst of this time and this strife in Rome, uh, Paul is writing to these people who he has come to love in this church that is a young church. And he is writing to them from his heart in this letter. And as J.D. described last week, when a letter would come from somebody like Paul, people would gather together in a room to hear what Paul had to say and somebody would read it out loud to them. So I'm going to read to you just like they would have 2,000 years ago when the church got this letter. And I'm just going to read a, a section of Romans 12, starting in verse 14. So just listen and see if there's anything that just kind of highlights to you that God might want to bring to the surface for you as I read just these few verses. Paul says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Here at the end of this letter, when Paul starts talking about if your enemy is hungry, feed him, etc., he's quoting and echoing Jesus in a lot of ways, right? But he's taking a direct quote uh, from Psalm, or from a proverb, and he's saying here in from Proverbs 25, this is something that God has always been about. God has always been about loving your enemies. If they're hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. Jesus is constantly talking about peace or shalom. If you just read through the Gospels, the story of Jesus' life and ministry, you see him constantly talking about peace. One of the most famous places that Jesus talks about peacemaking is in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says this short but really powerful phrase. He says, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Uh, a pastor that I really, really look up to in history is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and this is a book that he wrote um, called Discipleship. It actually, now we know it 
very well as The Cost of Discipleship, but this is the original title, just straight up Discipleship. And he wrote this in 1935. And as he was writing this, I think he was maybe 31, uh, maybe a little bit younger than that. And in 1935, uh, as a pastor in Germany, he was watching the rise of the Nazi regime coming into power and beginning to end human lives for no reason, right? And as he is writing these words, um, he's watching this happen. And just 10 years later in 1945, the Nazis uh, hung him and killed him because of some of his efforts in thinking that the Nazis should not be in power. And he's in the midst of watching this violent takeover of his own country, these people that he loves. And this is what he says about the phrase, blessed are the peacemakers, from the Sermon on the Mount. I just want to read what he says because I found it to be really powerful and something worth, worth thinking about. This is what he says. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Jesus' followers are called to peace. When Jesus called them, they found their peace. Jesus is their peace. Now they are not only to have peace themselves, they are to make peace. To do this, they renounce violence and strife. Those things never help the cause of Christ. Christ's kingdom is a realm of peace, and those in Christ's community greet each other with a greeting of peace. Jesus' disciples maintain peace by choosing to suffer instead of causing others to suffer. They preserve community when others destroy it. They renounce self-assertion and are silent in the face of hatred and injustice. That is how they overcome evil with good. That is how they are makers of divine peace in the world of hatred and war. But their peace will never be greater than when they encounter evil people in peace and are willing to suffer from them. Peacemakers will bear the cross with their Lord, for peace was made at the cross. Because they are drawn into Christ's work of peace, called to the work of the Son of God, they themselves will be called children of God. It gives a lot for us to think about, and I, I think about um, the reality of what he's saying here, and this idea of suffering, and that peacemaking and suffering often go together. Because it, it actually means you're not going to just get your way, and you don't have to always be right. It doesn't mean that you don't still think what you think, or you aren't the same person, but it's choosing to be the person who like he says, receives suffering instead of causes suffering. And I think that what is so clear here is the peacemakers are going to be blessed. They're going to be children of God. They're going to be God's kids. The people who people say that is a child of God is somebody who is a peacemaker. And as Paul says, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone, as far as it depends on you. Uh, so I got permission to tell a story from my friend Siri. Where are you, Siri? Siri and I were friends in college. I just want you to know, I do ask people permission before I start talking about them up here. So if you're about to share something with me and wondering if it's going to be a next week's sermon, I will ask you. Um, but Siri and I were friends in college. Do you have that picture, Rollin, of us in college? Ooh, I didn't ask you about that. Sorry. There we are. Aren't we precious little shiny face girls? Um, so Siri and I met a long time ago when we were in college. And we were freshmen, and we were really good friends for our whole freshman year. It was, a, it was a great year. We had so much fun living in the dorms. But the summer after freshman year, Siri and I had a huge falling out. And we don't need to talk about the details of that, but it was huge. The really awkward part of that is that we were already signed up to be sophomore roommates. So that meant that we were going to live in like a 9-foot by 12-foot room for 
was awkward. Facebook was not a thing yet, so there was no status, but it was awkward. And um, the funny thing was is that her dad had this great idea to build this lofted bed for us, and the bed was a long lofted bed that um, our feet were towards each other. And at first it seemed like it was going to be fine, like we weren't going to have, you know, hitting each other with feet, but you'd kind of slide and different things. Anyway, there was some kicking, there was some kicking. And it wasn't intentional, but it maybe was sometimes intentional. Okay, because we were really, it was bad, like we were really not getting along. And then we were living in this suite with all these other women, and it made it awkward for all of them. It was just a whole thing. And basically, we were here in this room. Um, I love sleeping with a feather duvet. Anybody else? Feather duvet. I'm really high maintenance like that. Siri could not handle the fact that that meant that there were a few feathers in the room. She would suggest that there were more than a few feathers in the room, and I would hear her at night going like this. Because <laughs> apparent, apparently feathers were getting in her mouth which was just hilarious. And I was upset that she had to continue to grow this Nalgene bottle collection. Those were really popular. She had like 25 Nalgenes. And I was like, listen, could we just have three, maybe four, four Nalgenes? She had these huge snowshoes. They were awesome. But the room was nine feet by 12 feet. You don't need the snowshoes in the room. So needless to say, the conflict was really, really deep, but it ended up being about things like kicking and, and Nalgene bottles and stuff like that. And, and we just could not let it go. And in college, you know, many of you had that season of life. It'd be easy just to move on, right? I mean, I've got tons of friends to choose from, and so does she. We could have just said, forget it. That was a fail. Failed attempt at being friends. Let's move on. But the reality is, is that somehow, somehow, miraculously, God restored our friendship. And it's a long story exactly how that happened. But honestly, I don't even think we totally know how, except that neither of us were willing to bail. Neither of us were willing to bail. And so we stayed in it, and we did not live together junior year, which was key. Um, but we stayed in it, and by the time we were seniors, we did live together as roommates again. And we still had fights about the Nalgene bottles and the feathers. But other than that, it was a good year, and there was a lot of peace, and, uh, you know, now we've been friends. But the reality is, is when you're in those types of situations, right, there's this, most of you would say you know, recognize this in your life. You have your fight-or-flight response, Right? When you're in a, a conflict or a tense situation, you have a fight-or-flight response. And most of you probably have one that you lean towards. You're either a fighter or a flyer, and you head out. And so I think we had some fights, and we had some times when it was tempting to fly and to just get out of there and say, forget it. Um, but sometimes we actually have to fight for peace. You actually have to fight to maintain peace, like fighting for peace itself and pushing through conflict. And I want to give just a really important caveat that I think is very, very important for me to say from this stage. Uh, if you're in an abusive relationship or you know who, somebody who is, then what we're talking about does not apply to you. What I would say, if somebody's in an abusive relationship, they need to get out and get saved. Absolutely. There is absolutely no time when the peacemaking and all of that means that somebody should stay in a relationship where they're getting hurt time and time again. We hurt each other as people, but when it's abuse, then we need to get help and we need to do that. So that's something that I would say is really clear, and I want you to know as a pastor, I would never advocate for somebody to stay in, a, in an abusive relationship, whether that's with a spouse or a significant other or a family or a clergy member, whatever. Always, always, always. So that's not what we're talking about here. That's not what was going on with me and Siri. So caveat, really important one, okay? So with us, it was we had to stay in it. We had to fight for our relationship and fight for our friendship. And in this story, we did that. 
And I would say that we came to a place where we thought it was impossible for there to be reconciliation. Like, it was in so many ways a miraculous thing that God did that in our relationship, brought us back to actually being able to be friends. And I think what Siri and I learned at the young age of 21 is that God can restore something that seems like it's broken in a way that it can't be fixed. And by senior year, we were roommates again. Um, after graduation, the summer after graduation, Siri's mom died in a car accident really suddenly on the day, the five-year anniversary of the day that my dad died. Crazy. We almost weren't friends. Siri was there since the beginning of Mill City. She's led in multiple ways in our church and continues to do that with our kids and in other ways as well. Uh, Siri and her daughter Lucy live with my mom right now, in, and Siri lives in the bedroom that I grew up in uh, for, what, four years now? You've lived with my mom. I cannot imagine my life without Siri in this room. I was there the day that Lucy was born, and I hope that I'm there for the rest of her life. And it almost wasn't a thing because of conflict. And last weekend we were staying in, in, the, in a room at the winter getaway, three of us roommates. I brought the feather comforter. Sorry, it goes where I go. But now I know Siri as somebody who, like Paul says, Siri is somebody who is willing, as far as it depends on her, to live at peace with everyone. And she proved that in her relationship with me, but she's proved that time and time again in her life. But the truth is about peacemaking is that it's only really possible, I think, with God. But it also takes the other party being willing to make peace, doesn't it? And some of you are thinking about experiences in your life where the other person was not willing to make that peace or even come to the table to begin that process. And for Siri, that's an experience that she has. The reality is that in life, sometimes people are unfaithful to you. And that was Siri's experience in her marriage. And she was willing to make peace and reconciliation even when the worst thing you can imagine happens in your marriage if someone's unfaithful to you. But it takes both parties to want to make peace, doesn't it? And the reality for that in her life is that that resulted in her being a single mom. But it wasn't because of anything except that she was willing, as far as it depended on her, to make peace. And I cannot explain to you how deeply I respect Siri for being willing to try to make peace in a relationship when many, many people would tell her, it's fine, you shut up. I can't even explain how much I respect her for that. Siri is a peacemaker. We are all peacemakers, or we can be. God made us to be that way. God created us in God's image, and God is the Prince of Peace and offers to us the opportunity to step fully into that part of the image that we were created. And the way I watched Siri do that, the way I've watched many of you do that, stepping into that reality of that part of your life as an image bearer to be a person who is a peacemaker. But it can mean suffering, and it can mean trials. But it also means that there's times when we experience relational miracles. And I know some of you have stories of those relational miracles where you thought that something was so broken it could never be repaired, but God repaired it. And I love hearing those stories. And I know there's just as many stories about when it goes the other direction. But if you are willing, if I am willing, so far as it depends on me to try to live at peace with everyone, then we'll have an opportunity to see those miracles. If we don't, we won't. God is willing and able to bring things that have been torn apart back together. So I just want to talk practically here for just a minute. What does it look like to be a peacemaker? 
I think this passage is actually really, really clear, so I'm just going to list them out, and Rowan can put them on the screen. Paul says, blessed don't curse. When we pray for people, we can't hate them. Try it, okay? Try praying for the opposite political party than you this week. Just see what happens, okay? I'm just saying, blessed don't curse. There's a lot of wisdom in that. Uh, The second thing, share joy and share sorrow. It was rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. A lot of times in life, people feel like nobody notices their celebration or celebrates with them, or nobody notices their pain and steps into that with them. And that actually causes a lot of conflict, doesn't it? When we get so wrapped up in our own world that we don't see that with other people and we don't step towards that. The third thing, be willing to be friends with anyone. That's really clear here in Romans 12. It's important that we're willing to be friends with anybody because it's, it's true that we get along with certain people better than others. But there is nobody that's better than anybody else. We live in a society that suggests that, don't we? But that is not real. That is not true. That's not how God sees it. Sure, some people are a little more socially awkward to get along with than other people, but they think that about you. So it's fine. You know, you just step towards it, just push through it a little bit. I get that. But be willing to be friends with anyone. None of us are too good for anybody else. Let God deal with people and don't take revenge. Number four, don't take revenge. Um, that's really clear in this passage, isn't it? Here's the thing. It doesn't actually feel better after you take revenge anyway. It just makes it worse. It just makes it worse. I was a hockey player. Whenever I went back after somebody who, like, illegally checked me or whatever happened, I'm the one that got put in the penalty box, not them, right? That's just what happens. It doesn't actually help. Finally, fifth, feed people. Some people like this one, right? Just feed people. If somebody's hungry, give them some food. This woman, uh, Elizabeth Lesser from the TED Talk, she said that the person who talked about otherizing, she said that you should take the other to lunch. Take the other to lunch. So take somebody to lunch who is a Republican if you're a Democrat. And if you're a Democrat, take a Republican to lunch. If you are a a person who has a certain view on a hot-button issue, take somebody else to lunch who has the opposite view than you and have a conversation. If you're somebody who, you know, find that person who doesn't think climate change is real or whatever, take them to lunch. If you're that person, someone, take them to lunch. You know, like, that's fine. And Elizabeth here says that what you're doing here is not the goal to tell the other person why you're right but to listen to them and to hear them out. The goal is also not to switch your opinion. That's okay. It's just to hear them and treat them like a person, not like the other or otherizing them, but try to listen to them. I think the feeding people thing is a great idea. And then finally, the best way to combat evil is with good. You see that at the end of Romans 12. How can we serve each other? How can we speak well of each other? How can we choose not to slander people, but to affirm them? And then I would just add to what Paul says here by pointing out what Jesus says in Matthew 18. Many of you have studied this before. If you haven't, I would encourage you to do that. The Matthew 18 principle is if you have a conflict with somebody, Jesus makes it very clear. If you have a conflict with somebody, go to them first. Don't gab about it with everybody else, right? Or put it on Facebook. Don't do that for sure. Go to the person right away. If they won't hear you out, bring somebody with you. If they still won't hear you out, bring somebody who's a leader or somebody in authority so that they might still hear you out. If after all of that, they still won't hear you out, then Jesus says, treat them like a pagan or a tax collector. Which you're like, ooh. Wait, how did Jesus treat pagans and tax collectors? He loved them over and over and over again, and he never offered anything but love and love and love and continued to give truth and truth and truth. So Jesus does not back down from being a peacemaker. In Christian community, we have a different commitment to each other. It's called a covenant. And the difference 
between a commitment and a covenant is God. And the difference between trying to work through a conflict and commitment and trying to work through a conflict and covenant is God. And it's possible because God leads us through that. God is in the business of reconciliation, reconciling us to God and reconciling us to each other. That's what Jesus did on the cross. That's why there's so much power in what Jesus did. Being willing to stay in it even when it's hard. And the world is going to notice that because it's countercultural, isn't it? It's countercultural to love our enemy. It's countercultural to stay in a relationship even when you're different. It's countercultural to hold tension in, of difference of opinion and stay in a community where you disagree. It's countercultural to choose peace even when you've been hurt. It's countercultural to try to reconcile after there's been unfaithfulness. It's something that's countercultural. And we should never be countercultural just for the sake of being different. We should do it because that's what God's kids do. God's kids are peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be children of God. We are children of God. That is our identity. That is our destiny. That is our purpose. That's who we are. And you can try to escape that part of yourself, but that's who God made you to be. A person who can offer peace. As far as it depends on you, live at peace everywhere. Um, as I close today, I was thinking about this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. And I just wrote you all a letter as the church, um, Paul as a pastor, writing to some people that he loves, but me as a pastor, writing to some people that I love, even though I don't know all of you. Um, and I just want to offer this letter to you. And if you want a copy of it, I printed out some of them to you, so you can have it. Um, so this is what I wrote to you, based off of this letter that Paul wrote in Romans 12. Dear Mill City family, I am so proud of you. You should hear me talk about you all behind your backs. I tell everyone about the risks that you are taking and the ways that you are stepping out in mission. I tell people about how you love people different than you and how you are embracing your neighbors no matter what their background. I share the stories of people coming to know Jesus and, the begin and beginning to heal from their wounds. Here is my biggest hope for each of you. Continue to give all of yourselves to Jesus. I know this living sacrifice idea sounds dangerous, but I promise you it will always be worth it. When we open our lives to God and surrender, he will fill our lives with good things. But at this point, we know it's true. It won't always be easy. If you really want to know what God wants for you and have the opportunity to respond, you have to give your life away. Give it all to Jesus. You can trust him. As much as I brag about you, it's important that we stay humble. It's easy in the world we live in to compare ourselves to others. We want to try to validate ourselves by putting others down. Let's not think of ourselves more highly than we ought, but instead, let's be good at what we're good at and let others do the same. As a church, we bring specific things to this city, and our brothers and sisters at other churches bring different gifts to the table as well. Let's continue to be a church that brings unity by living out our strengths, but also being quick to praise the strengths in others. Let's affirm other communities. Don't tear them down. Let's care about them with a sincere love, even if we disagree in certain ways. Honor others above yourselves. That is what it means to cling to what is good. When it comes to our church community, be devoted to one another in love. Let's love each other enough to work through conflict, not to ignore it. Let's love each other enough to stay in covenant even when our fight or flight impulse comes on. No matter what we face together, when it comes to conflict or disagreement, Jesus can lead us through it if we trust him. Stay passionate. Keep the flame in your heart lit. It might actually lead to conflict at times. And if that happens, bless each other, don't curse. Try to listen 
Open up your lives to each other and pray for each other. Remind each other that the hope we have in Jesus brings joy, even when we go through trials. When people are new to our community, look for people who seem left out. We are all hosts offering hospitality at our church, not just the staff or leaders. Let's make everyone who comes to be with our community feel like the most important person in the world. And if others need something in our community, help them out if you can. Also, being willing to ask for help when you need it too. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Never take revenge. It doesn't make you feel better long-term anyway. We could all use more shalom in our lives. We know that our world needs it. You don't have to forget what you believe or change your mind and think like everybody else. But being an independent thinker doesn't mean you have to be a lone ranger. Let's stick together and not let controversies, even important ones, keep us from unity and diversity. Let's not become one of those sad tales of a community ripped apart. Pray that God would lead us through whatever we might face. I wake up every day and I think, I can't believe I get to pastor these amazing people. I really mean that. You are all amazing. And if there is any reason that I hope that our church would grow, it's that I want more people to be in a family like this. I want more people to know that the family of God is for them. I want them to know that Jesus loves them so much. And if they want a glimpse of what that feels like, they should have a chance to be loved by Mill City Church. We get the chance to show people what it means to be loved like Jesus as we love our community in his name. Let's keep it up. Our love, hope, and peace will echo in our city and the effects of that echo we may never know. But I promise it will make a difference because God is moving. With love, 